As we come now before the Word of God, please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to Exodus in chapter 1. We'll finish out this first chapter this morning. This is Exodus chapter 1. And before we read, and even before we pray, I feel as if I need to uh, give a little bit of a caveat here at the beginning. I suppose this is uh, a content warning of what we're about to hear and listen to. There are some sensitive issues in this text, especially as we begin to unpack them, things related to uh, the deaths and even the killing of infants, and in parts uh, maybe heavy. Uh, remember, I did not choose this text for this week. This is just the next section of of Exodus as we've gone through, and, and I've spent a lot of time wrestling this week uh, over these things, consulting scholars and pastors and even a, a doctor about these things to try to help me and us understand this. Uh, I, I'm aware that these are not just truths out of a textbook. They are true, but these things become very personal, and so uh, you should be aware that there may be some troubling uh, things here. On that somber note, um, would you please pray with me? Lord, your word is good, and we cling to it. Uh, Lord, as your word uh, says, and now I join for us in, in affirming, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord, would you use your word to draw us close to you. Guide us now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pick up just the tail end of the section we looked at last week. Uh, so we'll begin in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. This is Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, and so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, 
And the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Now, there are some dark subjects or subjects addressed here, but there are also some very bright notes. We meet here in the midwives what one writer called a heroic resistance. And so this morning, we're really going to address and focus on the question of civil disobedience. In other words, when should the Christian disobey the governing leaders, as the midwives here have done? In order to help us answer that question, or at least to address it, we need to look at what's going on here in the text. Remember that in the beginning of the book of Exodus, Israel, the people of God, is thriving and fruitful. They're just multiplying like crazy, and this is the blessing of God to them. But to the Pharaoh, it's a threat. They're now a military threat, even, potentially. And so uh, Pharaoh cooks up a plan to control the Israelite population. Now, he could do that with military. There's lots of things he could do to just physically cut them down as a people. Uh, But at first, at least, he doesn't want to openly do that, it seems. He doesn't want to just publicly kill them, so he cooks up this more subtle, more long-term plan to control their population. So plan A was to turn the Israelites into slaves, to literally work them to death that as they worked hard, they would slowly sink into poor health, into poverty, into having a crushed spirit. But that plan fails, and we're told that the Israelites continue to multiply and to spread. So now, here today, we've got plan B, which is also not an open public plan. It's very subtle, given just to the midwives. And Pharaoh is going to try to cut the Israelites off at the source. He's going to try to control them at the point of the delivery room. So the Pharaoh then commands these midwives to do his dirty work. The command is in verse 16. Let me read it. He says to them, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, let her live. This is a heinous plan. And thankfully, this plan also fails because the midwives go against their government leaders, because the midwives enact civil disobedience. Now, for us to be able to look at what civil disobedience is and what it might look like for us, first we need to understand more about this particular situation with the midwives. 
The midwives do not do what the Pharaoh has asked. They disobey his command, but it would have taken Pharaoh a while, possibly months, maybe even years, to realize that they had disobeyed him. He wouldn't know it at first, not until he starts to see that there's still a bunch of Hebrew boys running all over the place, and then he goes, ah, they have disobeyed me. So surely, surely these midwives knew that their own day of reckoning was going to come. Surely they knew that when the Pharaoh realized that they were going against him, that they were likely to be killed, maybe even put in prison, something bad was going to happen. So they had all of this time to get themselves ready to prepare their response to him. And then the day of Pharaoh's realization comes. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, one who is considered a god even in their culture, calls these midwives into his throne room and says, Why? Why have you disobeyed me? Why have you let these male Hebrew babies live? Now the midwives have had all this time to prepare their answer. Look at their response. It's in verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, they give birth before the midwife comes to them. In other words, these Hebrew women are too strong. They give birth too fast. Now, what's interesting here for us is that this seems to be an acceptable response to Pharaoh. He doesn't punish them. There doesn't seem to be a consequence for their actions, for disobedience. Now, the question becomes, why not? Why would he not punish them? Why is their being too late to the birth? Why is that a viable reason for not killing the boys? I mean, let's think about this. Even if they were late to the birth, two hours, you know, two, two, two minutes, two days even, couldn't they still in some way do what the Pharaoh had asked? Couldn't they still go ahead and kill the boys and keep the girls? What is different for them if they arrive after the birth? The key here, I think, is that Pharaoh intends to keep this Hebrew population under control quietly. He wants to do it Subtly, without the people knowing all of what he's doing. It's only after this plan, plan B fails, that he kicks into final plan C, which we see at the end of the chapter, where there's total public knowledge, where he just commands to all the people in Egypt, you know, if you see a Hebrew boy, chuck him in the Nile River to drown. Then it's full-on public knowledge, but not here. Not yet. For now, he wants to try to keep it behind the curtain if he can. 
So he wants these midwives to kill the Hebrew baby boys without the family knowing that their child had been killed. This has led to a lot of discussion among scholars about how exactly Pharaoh is asking these midwives to do this. Most of this discussion revolves around the translation of the word birth stool in verse 16. I know that's an odd word for us. I mean, today in the U.S., it's common to deliver a baby uh, in, a, in a bed, you know, lying back. And that's not because that's easier for the woman. The reason why that's often done is because that makes it easier for the doctor to help deliver that baby. But historically, in the United States, and even today, elsewhere, it is much more common for women to deliver in a different position than that. To, to either be seated in some way, or even to be uh, squatting in order to, to aid the birth. So they, uh, in this context, some think that these women would be squatting on stones or some sort of brick or what might be called here a birth stool. So it is possible that what Pharaoh is saying to the midwives is when you see this child on the birth stool, in other words, just as the baby is born, if you see it's a boy, I want you to quickly do something, I won't be too graphic, but do something to immediately end that boy's life there on the birth stool so that it will appear to the family that the child has been stillborn. That's hard to imagine. It's hard to stomach how they might do that. And it would be very difficult to do, especially without the family knowing what's going on. But there's another possibility of what's happening here, and uh, one that I think is uh, more likely the case, but it is just as hard to imagine this one. The Hebrew word that is translated in English here, birth stool, only shows up one other time in the scripture. It's in Jeremiah chapter 18. We won't go there because we don't need to read it. But there in the context, it is clear that the translation of this word with some sort of stones are clearly a potter wheel. You know, the kind where you, you kick your foot on one stone and the top spins so that you can shape pottery. There in Jeremiah, it's a potter wheel. Now, is that the case here? When you look at the child on the potter wheel, that doesn't make sense, does it? Why would a midwife be looking on a potter wheel? In Egyptian culture, there was a prominent Egyptian god named Kanum, who was the god of the source of the Nile. He was also the god of the source of human life. And in a lot of their Egyptian hymns and their creation myths, Kanum is sung about as the god of the potter wheel. 
In fact, if you look at, at, at the carvings of stones in Egyptian hieroglyphics, Kanum, uh, this god, is depicted as molding man upon a potter wheel. You can see him spinning the rock and forming man. In other words, when Pharaoh perhaps here is saying, Midwife, when you look on the potter wheel, that's a way of saying, when you look on the child as the child is being formed, or when you look on the child in the womb, when you look on the child in some sort of prenatal exam, if that child is a boy, kill him there in the womb. And this would have been possible. Ancient Egyptian medicine is far from precise. It's not the medicine we know today, but it also was far ahead of its time. The Egyptians had a system in which they could try to tell a boy or a girl before that child is born, I guess, so they know whether they should buy blue or pink or gender. They had some system for that. They also... We know because we still have uh, some of the papyrus from this. In an Egyptian medical text, there are specific instructions about how to abort a child in the womb. I'll spare you the details of it, uh, but they were to make some sort of compact uh, cloth crushed with uh, dates and, and onions and honey and some other things, and it was to be, I'll say, applied in a particular way. But there was a system in which they said, if you are to abort this baby, this is how to do it. So it seems as if, if these midwives arrive just before the birth, they could do this thing, apply this thing, and the child would be killed in the womb so that the mother would deliver a lifeless boy. And that would leave her broken and sobbing. But at least she would never know what the midwives had done. Pharaoh is commanding here that the midwives at least be silent murderers. But even perhaps asking them to be secret abortion doctors. If this sounds like heavy language, that's because it is. I mean, this is heavy stuff. I recognize that the abortion issue can be very complex in a lot of ways. It's much more nuanced than we have time or ability to address in this context. But whether a person gives permission for an abortion or not, whether a person wants a child or not, to kill a human life in or out of the womb is sin. It is very serious evil. So if you or someone you know is considering an abortion, 
put that thought out of your mind. Don't even entertain it. I realize that for some people, the prospect of raising a child or another child can be so frightening that this seems like a viable option. But don't go there. It is not worth it. And if you or someone you know has already experienced an abortion, listen to me. You need to know that it is sin. I can't lie to you. I won't tell you any different. It is sin. But it is sin that can be forgiven. It is sin that you can heal from. You will need Jesus and the care of his people in order to do that. But he welcomes you in. Jesus welcomes the broken sinner who comes to him. The reason why he came is to give up his life and die for sinners. So don't be too ashamed to come. Come. And Christians, can't, we can't afford to look down our nose at people that have experienced this. Because every Christian knows in his or her own heart that he is a deep and wicked sinner too. In need of the grace and mercy of Jesus. If you have experienced this, come and be healed. We want to be a people who are truly transformed by the love and grace of Jesus. We even want to be a people who stand and defend the most vulnerable among us. That includes women who are in very tough and scary situations. And that includes infants, even those who are not yet born. The good news is, the good news is, we see defenders here. Defenders of good things. There is in this text, as wicked as what is being asked, there is a heroic resistance. The midwives stand against the command of the most powerful man, perhaps on earth at the time. And the reason for the midwives' resistance, we're told in verse 17, is because the midwives feared God. When we're told that they feared God, it's not because they're afraid of what God would do to them if they did this. Although it is true that the Lord could do far more than Pharaoh ever could. When it says that they fear God, that's a way of saying that they held God in reverent awe. That they pledged obedience to God. That they pledged allegiance to God. And because they feared God, they did not fear Pharaoh, at least not in some sense, not so far that they would cave in and follow, in to give, uh, follow after his governing command. 
Instead, they disobeyed. Disobeyed Pharaoh. This is what we call civil disobedience. Now, the question for us here is, did the midwives do the right thing? Was it right for them to disobey Pharaoh? Probably in our gut, there's an automatic sense of, yes, of course they did the right thing. But we should always check ourselves. First, we want to be careful readers of the word of God. Not everything that happens in the Bible is good or approved of. But here, we do know it's sure that the midwives, what they did was approved of. The Lord's response to the bravery of the midwives is not just to save them from Pharaoh. He also gave them families. In fact, this is the first explicit act of God named in the book of Exodus. That for these midwife women these ones who had dedicated their whole lives to delivering other people's children, these women who had now risked their own necks to save these baby boy children because they feared God, God gave them children of their own. The Lord does approve of this here. And we see in the book of Exodus that no matter what the Pharaoh does, whatever he plans to do, he never really succeeds against the ultimate power and plan of God. God is always the highest power. No one can even hold a candle to him. But it's good for us to see that one of the ways in which God delivers us from evil one of the ways he does that is through the civil disobedience of his people. So what does it look like for us? What exactly does the Bible say about civil disobedience for the Christian? The general principle in the scripture, at least our default approach to these things, is to submit to our governing leaders even if they're wrong. Did you expect that? That's the general principle in the scripture, to submit to our governing leaders even if they're wrong. Now, we all need to hear this, but I know especially us younger generations probably need to hear this because... There are crowds of young people that have been watching governments act in pretty immoral ways, and Christians defend in sometimes pretty immoral ways, and so the young crowd's knee-jerk reaction I see very often is to fight, usually on Twitter. But that's not generally the call for the Christian. In 1 Peter, there's a number of places the scripture addresses this. Uh, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 13. But I'll look here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, if I can get there. There's a number of verses here. Listen, this is very instructive for all of us here. 1 Peter chapter 2, 
uh, beginning in verse 13, he writes this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Now, what's most challenging about that particular command, especially as it comes from Peter, that as he wrote this letter, the emperor at the time was most likely Nero, the emperor who was pretty famously wicked. Nero is, is, is the guy that, you know, fed Christians to the lions, that, uh, that burned Christians to light his gardens. Uh, Pharaoh, as legend goes, whether it's true or not, fiddled while Rome burned. Whatever's true of Nero, he was pretty clearly a bad guy and a bad governor, and yet Peter still says to Christians, fear God, honor the emperor. To know how to honor the emperor gets pretty complex pretty fast. I mean, does that mean there's not a time to speak up? No. Does that mean there's not a time to stand in protest? No. We're seeing a whole giant people group in Hong Kong doing that right now. So to honor does not mean there's just sort of an unquestioning patriotism or loyalty to one's nation. Honor means that on some level we submit ourselves. So if we reject every leader, every you know, company, every government, whenever they go against God in some way, we will very quickly find that we just reject everything and end up kind of becoming our own very flawed leaders. We are called instead to submit. So we still pay taxes even if the government is corrupt. We still show respect to our governing leaders, even if they are unjust. I have a feeling that would change a lot of the political conversation if Christians really took this to heart. Now, all of that said, if the Christian's default position is submission to our government, when do we go against those leaders in civil disobedience? Because sometimes we should. When do we do that? The clearest examples in Scripture, like in the case of the midwives in Exodus chapter 1, is this. If you are commanded to do evil directly, if you are commanded to do evil directly in direct violation of God and his will, then you must obey God rather than men. Then you must disobey the leader in civil disobedience in order to, to obey God, if it's a direct command. So here's my best way at sifting this out. Imagine that your dad 
and you're a kid, your dad leaves for the day. So of course he has to put someone in charge and it's not you. It's your older brother, let's say. Dad's out for the day, older brother's in charge, and dad has one cardinal rule of the home, which is don't touch the thermostat. It's the main rule. That in your head, some of you are smiling. That must have been the rule in your upbringing. That's dad's rule. So a big brother's in charge, don't touch the thermostat. As soon as dad leaves, let's say your older brother goes and cranks up the thermostat. Now, you might warn him, you're going to get in trouble. You might make signs and march around, although that seems kind of silly in this context. You might call your dad and tell on him, or at least you know, tell dad when dad comes home what happens, but, but none of this nullifies the fact that your dad has put him in charge. And you are still called to submit to his authority as given from your dad. But if your older brother tells you, turn up the thermostat. If you are now commanded to do something in direct violation of the will of the Father, if you are forced to either obey your dad or obey the big brother who's in charge, then you have to choose to obey your father. He is the ultimate authority, the higher authority. That is a sense in which diso civil disobedience must occur, even if your brother threatens to pummel you if you don't do it. Civil disobedience means we give our ultimate allegiance to God. And it will not always be dramatic. It doesn't necessarily have to be loud or disruptive in order to be faithful to God. We know that when the prophet Daniel lived in Babylon, there were lots, lots of immoral things happening in that place. The Babylonian king made it illegal by law to petition or pray to anyone except himself. And Daniel knew that he couldn't follow that. Daniel didn't start a march. He didn't shout at the king or wave a finger at him, but he also was not afraid to disobey the king either. Daniel knew he had to obey God, and so he continued his regular practice. Daniel went into his room, he got on his knees, and he violated the law as he prayed to God. That, by the way, is what got him thrown in the lion's den. Real civil disobedience isn't always flashy, but it is often costly, sometimes even dangerous, to follow the ways of God in opposition to the real power of men can sometimes even cost us our lives. And I'm sure the midwives knew that. I'm sure they knew they were sticking out their neck to do this. Which is what makes the midwives' decision to follow God, it's what makes them so brave. I want to be like that. I want us to be like that. I want my girls to grow up to be like that. 
that they would be a people, that we would be a people willing to stand for what is right and good and not shrink back or cower in fear even if there is great cost to us. So how do we get there? How do we become this brave? The answer, I think, is by learning to fear God. To be shaped to be a God-fearing people. By seeing God for who he is, that he's the true king over all. He's the ultimate Pharaoh. He's even the maker of man on the potter wheel. And that this God is worth giving up everything else for. This is a God who would transform very ordinary people into a heroic resistance that would save an entire generation. This is a God worth trusting and a God worth following. Would you pray with me? Lord, We know that you alone are mighty to save. And Lord, would you work in us this same sort of conviction that we would be a people who fear you, who stand in reverent awe of you and will follow where you lead even if it costs us. Lord, we trust you and the power of Christ that you will be with us as we follow you, thank you for being our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.